0: conversations about radical and critical approaches to technology. If you'd like to support the production of the Anti-Dystopians, you can subscribe to our email newsletter by following the links below. We also include links to articles, books, or other additional reading mentioned in our conversations, as well as alerts about upcoming episodes, so be sure to take a look. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everybody. We're here today with James Muldoon, who's a senior lecturer in political science at the University of Exeter and head of digital research at the Autonomy Think Tank. And we're talking today about his latest book, Platform Socialism, How to Reclaim Our Digital Future from Big Tech. So thanks so much for coming on the Anti-Dystopians today.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. It's really wonderful to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm so excited because I absolutely, as I let you know, uh, loved this book. So really excited to delve more into it. Um, But maybe we could just start with for our listeners, you know, just a bit about yourself and your background. So like, how did you first get interested in studying political science technology? um, And how exactly does, you know, being an academic in political science influence how you are thinking about these technology corporations?
1: So I have a quite, quite a diverse background. I started off as a lawyer, and then I did a PhD in philosophy, and then I wrote a book on history, and then I entered a political science department, and then I started writing on sociology. So I've really like gone across five or six disciplines, but what I really wanted to do with this book on platforms was take my experience researching the history of the labor movement, and try to look at the kind of organisational structure, the moves to democratise workplaces and the state, and see if I could apply lessons from the history of the labour movement to digital platforms. I think one of the things we've seen in mainstream criticisms of digital platforms is that it's so often these tech insider-turned-critics who are the largest and most vocal voices that we hear. So your Tristan Harris's and your Francis Haugen's, And my problem with this being the mainstream view is that it's the very people who cause the problems uh, who are the ones that are the most heard uh, in terms of us finding solutions to them. And I think that when you look at the kinds of things that they're proposing, it's really shaped by the same Silicon Valley mindset and worldview that got us into these problems in the first place. So I really kind of pitch myself as, as an outsider looking in. As someone who doesn't come from a tech background who doesn't do any kind of software development or who hasn't worked for one of the big tech companies um and i'm trying to show what someone else might be able to to say on this so what uh, a different perspective one that's kind of uh couched in terms of democracy in terms of um solidarity and and what this kind of perspective might bring us
0: Yeah. Okay, so your book is platform socialism one which i really like as a title um and exactly as you say, it's great because it brings together that that critical analysis of, that you know of history and, and political theory, as well as that critique on technology um, that can sometimes be missing from the tech insider, uh, whistleblowing quote unquote. Um, and you also offer some really like interesting like solutions and paradigms through which to think about both like critiquing tech, but also like how we can address the inequities that they. They bring up. Um, so maybe uh, you could talk a little bit about like what how you're defining what platform socialism is and like how you came up with like the idea for a book about platform socialism in, in the first place um, and, and kind of like the main the main idea or argument of, of the book.
1: Well, I'm glad you like the title platform socialism, because honestly, a lot of people don't Oh, really, <laughs> I think, well, I think, you know, people often really like the ideas that are in the book, right? Because I talk about such things as communities having more control over the platforms that they use, member driven platforms about a more equitable share of value being distributed in the digital economy. And a lot of people are like, yeah, we're in, yeah, this sounds great. Uh, and I think the the socialism logo either makes them think of like twentieth century russia or or of some contemporary socialist person, let's say jeremy corbyn or or uh Sanders that they they don't like. so I have actually had a, a a lot of people say, you know we love the ideas, but we think you need a rebrand. but one of the reasons i I did call it platform socialism is because the key idea of the book is about social ownership. It's about how larger communities can own and have a say in digital platforms that have such a big influence over our everyday lives. And I didn't want to hide away from the fact that this is what I was advocating, that that actually the main problem with a lot of these platforms and the reason they come into so many issues related to surveillance, to polarisation, to, you know, this like idea of ever increasing user engagement, the underlying issue here is that they're profit driven companies and and that they're structurally constrained within a competitive marketplace to operate in certain ways. So when you are operating in a data market, um, you know, you you have to pursue some of these strategies because otherwise your competitors will do better than you. They'll be able to sell more advertising products or or be able to outpace you in, in various other ways. Um, so it's really a, a matter of looking at the bigger picture and trying to analyze the political economy of some of these platforms and, and the kinds of choices that they're forced to make based on the fact that they're not public utilities, they're not services that, that everyone can use that are free, they're, they're for profit companies and that's how they need to run their businesses. Um, so this, this is to, a long answer to your question. This is why I called it platform socialism um how did i come about writing the book um really this this has a lot to do with um how how poorly received my previous book was <laughs> because i spent like close to a decade of of really hard going archival research in german archives reading literally reading like gothic script that like a hundred years ago that like you can't even tell what's an S and what's an F and there are all these kinds of issues. And my German is, is already kind of questionable at the best of times. So scrolling through all these documents, it's a lot of work, right? Uh, and, and really because it was about such an, you know, arcane ye oldie issue of the German workers movement in early 20th century Germany and the German revolution um, it, it's, you know, it didn't quite get the, the reception that I would have hoped for it uh and i still think that it is like you know one of those underrated underrated books that is still waiting waiting to be discovered by a larger audience so um, the project for this book was really trying to take some of the lessons um and and key insights in political theory that that are still there waiting for any any good reader uh in in my other book um, building power to change the world the political thought of the german council movements and basically, try and snazz it up a little bit. Try and look at at how uh, these kinds of ideas, which I think could be very popular, uh, could get a, a broader audience with in terms of like digital platforms and, and the kind. And so, I think that's kind of similar to uh, some of the things that that you're doing, Alina, with your project on the political theory of corporations and looking in particular at at digital corporations.
0: Yeah, it's a good way to make people pay attention. Um, it's so funny that you mentioned that about, about people's reaction to socialism too, because I always feel like it might be, I don't know if it's a peculiarly American thing, but it does seem to be a cold war hangover in some ways, because I remember when I first came to the UK, one of my professors says like, well, obviously if you read Marx and my first thought was like, you're not allowed to read Marx realizing, oh dear, (laughs) that might not be accurate (laughs) outside of the U S higher education context.
1: Yeah, I think um, the UK, because Marx lived here and there's this huge UK socialist scene, I think it's a bit more common here. Or and also continental Europe, right? Like there's a much deeper history of socialism than in the US, of course.
0: Yeah, it's yeah, it's 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 fascinating like the not not having that gut reaction of like, uh-oh, socialism equals communism equals totalitarianism. Um but but so obviously one of the 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 socialist thinkers you are drawing on in the book, um, along with Marx is is JDH Cole and, and Guild Socialism, which I think is really fascinating. And actually earlier in the year before I had read your book or before it even came out, I think I remember reading GDH Cole and thinking, oh, this would be really interesting applying to tech corporations. And then you did, and I was like, oh, this is fantastic. Um so I, I just want to ask then, you know, one of the things I hope political theory as a field focuses more on is associational democracy uh, and kind of like the, the democratic theories of corporations in general, not just companies, obviously, but things like, say, universities. Um, so I, and one of the lines in your book that I love is, you know, the fundamental flaw is that corporations don't see themselves as a threat. Um, so I wonder if you might talk a little bit about how you're featuring G.D.H. Cole in your um, and Guild socialism in, in your book, and then how you do think about you know associations, corporations like technology companies. Um, sh- how do you think about how and why they should be under public or democratic control?
1: Okay, well, there's a few issues there. So let's unpack. Um, first of all, you know, some of your listeners might not know who GDH Cole is. So let's try to relate his theories with some of these issues around corporations and um, broader participatory society. Um, one of the driving ambitions of the project is to find ways in which digital platforms can be owned and governed by their members. That's the kind of baseline, right? So at the level of the organization, We want a Twitter, for example, in which members have a say in new services that are operated, in who's on the board, uh, in how the the service is governed and and, and what kind of value can be derived from it. So this is the kind of starting point. Now, GDH Cole was a, a Fabian and a Guild socialist who was writing in the early 20th century, and his vision was really for a more participatory society in which every major association that we participated in we would have some kind of democratic right to how it was organised. So one example could be museums or cultural institutions. We might think of local sporting associations. Cole also had in mind, of course, the workplace. So centres of production. He would also include consumer councils. the The vision is really for a series of organisations which are themselves internally democratic. So what what the project involves is an extension of the principles of democracy from what he saw as a kind of narrow sphere of the state where we're electing one representative every three years for our entire constituency. And he wanted to spread those principles and have every major association to be democratically organised. So this involved a kind of decentering of the role of the state and really elevating the role of these series of intermediary institutions. Uh, and that's how Cole thought we could all become much more active citizens, and how we could create a more participatory society. So this is a very different view from something like the modern corporation, right? Because you know, and the, now to come to your quote that the corporations don't see themselves as, as the problem. One of the issues with these digital platforms is they're they're very um, they're not very likely to give significant amounts of power to their community to their users because one, they don't trust them, uh, and two, they see themselves as best placed to make decisions uh, about how the platform should, should be operated. So to, to turn to, for example, Airbnb, um, there is a huge part of their, their mission is to be a stakeholder corporation, to try to look out for all the communities that use the platform, from their host to their guests. And I have a chapter in the book. Um, about the return of these ideas of a stakeholder society because really it's from the kind of Blair Clinton era that these ideas first developed, right? So when 1980s capitalism was at its peak, you get this kind of backlash And then suddenly, like, no, we're, we're, you know, the profits at the top are too high and people at the bottom are missing out and and wages are stagnating. And so you get this kind of turn to to have a a kinder, more gentle form of capitalism, one that will share the wealth a little bit more. Uh, And so just as third-way politicians advocated for this uh, in in the kind of 1990s, so too do we see the return of this, um, both uh, in Silicon Valley, but also in the broader kind of corporate America. Um, in the past two or three years, particularly just before the pandemic, we saw these ideas returning to the World Economic Forum, um, to the the, uh, PR releases of of a lot of Silicon Valley companies. Um, And Airbnb was one of the pioneers of this in terms of um, advocating for these new types of, of stakeholder interests. But at the end of the day, all of this is just a PR strategy because in terms of conceptualizing their groups of users as a community, they always see themselves as the the leaders of that community. And it's always the leaders who should decide uh, on, on what happens and on what the company does and on how it solves its problems. And this is incredibly problematic because while there's this constant language of community building and community development, and there's almost like this ethos of these companies as social enterprises, At the end of the day, um, corporations do not see themselves as bad actors. No one is sitting in a boardroom and thinking, my power needs to be constrained. I need to have less power. I need to have less decision-making. I need to give that power up. Um, Power does not give itself up once obtained. That's just almost like a a kind of natural law, right? Um, And so it's ludicrous to think that, you know, these kinds of corporations will be able to self-regulate effectively without external forms of power from the state, from communities, from social movements that are able to mobilize against them.
0: I guess so. One question that I often have is that you know I think there's there's the problem almost as, as you kind of point out of 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 like internal workplace control and then the power the corporations have more generally. It's like one problem with Facebook is that like Mark Zuckerberg controls it because he controls majority voting shares and is CEO. Um, but even if Facebook was a completely like democratically run, like all Facebook workers had uh, equal input or whatever and they had votes, there would still be that that legitimacy problem of like the impact of Facebook, right? So as, as you point out, right, it's they're not... Uh, it wouldn't necessarily be responsive to the communities that it is affecting. Um, so I wonder like how do, how do you think of corporations and who gets to control them and then the wider impacts that they have?
1: Yeah, well, digital platforms radically change how we need to think of questions of workplace democracy, in my opinion. In the traditional model of workplace democracy, you have a geographically based small or medium enterprise, uh, and this can be run and managed by its workers. They can do this by electing people to a board to run the kind of day-to-day affairs, but by workers retaining one one person, one vote, there is a a sizable power at the bottom of the pyramid Uh, in terms of changing leadership, if there's ever any issues. And at the very least on major decisions, you can have a kind of plebiscite on on key rule changes or on changes for the the structure or the purpose of the organisation. So there's a nice little internal logic to the way in which workplace democracy could and should operate at that kind of level. Now, digital platforms change that because suddenly you've got a few new factors entering into the picture. Um, The first is that it often links together very diverse communities. In, For example, in marketplaces, this can be buyers and sellers with very opposing interests, right? One wanting to keep prices down, the other to elevate them. Secondly, the, the members of the platform uh, are not all on the same level, right? So some are going to be workers who have a stake in how the actual day-to-day business operates, Others will just be members or users of the platform, which will want to use the service on on you know a, a once-off basis or, or on a semi-regular basis, but they're not going to be there nine to five, you know, looking through bugs in the website or stuff like that. Um, sorry. And the final thing is. Um, They're not all geographically based in the same location. So suddenly you can have members of the service, you know, radically dispersed across the world. So, you know, this poses certain problems for traditional models of workplace democracy. I think the first response that we have to have is that a lot of these multinational corporations that are operating across the world need to be decentralised and broken up. And I think there are a vast majority of services that are currently delivered by platforms that could very easily be done on a much more local uh, and, and municipal basis. Now, this might be through workers' cooperatives that are directly owned by their workers. It might be through municipal associations that are in some way owned and governed by local public authorities. But in either case, so much of what exists in our current platform economy Um, could be localised. And now I hear I'm thinking of everything from domestic cleaning and care services to ride hail and food delivery services. A lot of this kind of, you know, everyday aspects of the platform economy, I think could be run at this more local level. So in terms of, um, yeah, the first step is is basically trying to make these platforms smaller because one of the fundamental principles of democracy is that it, it works best at a local level, right? Either and, and many people, even in the modern era, have thought that if you do want to reinvent democracy for modern times, um, the best way to do that is to do so within a kind of small geographic area where people can at the very least have some idea uh, of the kinds of people that they're going to be interacting with, the kinds of members of the association. They might have some limited face-to-face contact with them Uh, and they might be from some kind of shared community. So that's the first point. Um, The second point is that platform governance does give us some new tools with which we can start to rethink workplace democracy. So when we start to look at things called multi-stakeholder platform cooperatives, we can see that you can actually um, structure certain types of governance within these organisations to give different parties a different share of the vote. So, for example, Resonate, is a music streaming platform that is cooperatively run Uh, it's like spotify for example but you know a a cooperative version of this and they actually designate different seats on the board for listeners um, for musicians and for the software developers who help run the platform so you can have whatever percentage split that you want but something like a 40 40 20 split um, or, or what have you, is a way of trying to balance different interests within the, the, the model of a platform cooperative in which you might have different kinds of user groups uh, that otherwise might conflict or, or have their find their interests to be clashing. Um, so there are specific tools to digital platforms that could help us negotiate this kind of workplace democracy. Um, but at the very least, we need to start thinking about different ways we can from the local right up to the international think about how we can create democratic structures for this and it is you know admittedly it's the easiest at the local level and it's only when you get up to very specific types of digital platforms and and those are mainly social media um, internet search engines um, and and some forms of global marketplaces where you get into much thornier questions um, because sometimes the international dimension of the of the platform is is unavoidable and intractable, and indeed a, a core part of the service. So I think it's there that you need the most kind of experimentation. Whereas with some of the more things that can be localized, we can use some of our old formulas in in new ways.
0: It's really interesting because it actually bleeds into my next question. Because um, you said you know, it's digital and digital platforms specifically have. Is what has changed the calculus, and obviously one of the things I was struck by in the title is that you call it platform socialism rather than, like, say, tech socialism or, or something more more general. Um, so I wonder, then, you know, in the book and as well as in how you're how you're thinking about um, platform socialism, as you say, the platform economy. Why you chose to center platform specifically? Um, So do you think that platforms represent a new kind of like break or iteration of like either capitalism or corporations specifically? Um, And is there then a difference between tech corporations, which we don't think of as platforms? I'm thinking like Apple or Amazon, we don't always call them platforms, although they have platform aspects versus say Google and Facebook, which we or, or Airbnb, or or Uber, or what have you, in which we, we really associate with the platform. Then, is there kind of a, a a difference that you you are drawing out between between what those kinds of tech corporations
1: do? So the first part of the answer is well, there is a bit of marketing to this. You can't. You need to think of something that's going to be snazzy, <laughs> right? And I'm a big fan of Nick Cernicek's platform capitalism. I did kind of see this as like a successor book to that. I don't want to. Um, you know, to, to, to make him the, the author of all my mistakes, but there, there are the final four pages or so of his book where he kind of sketches a few possible types of alternatives. And part of the project was really both updating some of the analysis because it has been five or six years, uh, but also like really trying to flesh out what would public ownership mean? Because I think as soon as you say things like democratize Facebook or nationalize Amazon, it just raises all these questions of how exactly would you do it in practice? And so the book was really my attempt to show exactly how for a series of very specific types of platforms, how it would be done or how it could be done and and kind of contributing one possible model for, for you know, a vision of a a platform future. Um, This, I think, was really important because we don't have a really good imagination on the left for when it comes to technology. I think the, the kind of dominant view that I see on social media is just this kind of neo-Luddite approach of, well, this is shit, you know, uh, technology's crap. It's all designed to, to control workers and to surveil us. And, you know, to be honest, that's kind of true. <laughs> that is what it's doing, but that's precisely because this is what, uh, you know, technology companies are doing under this stage of capitalism. Uh, so the book is really thinking about trying to liberate technology from capitalism um, and to to imagine how we could organize technology and organize innovation in ways that weren't necessarily subjected to the same forms of capture and control uh, that exist uh, under under capitalism as we know it today. So there was this kind of you know super. I mean, the book opens with this idea of imag- social imagination and trying to to spark this kind of spirit of of, of tinkering with technology and, and innovating that that wasn't. Uh, subject to to the kind of demands of of capitalism. And the reason why I chose platforms was because I also think they have a very distinct business model that we do need to understand and come to terms with. Um, It's true that not all tech companies are platform companies, um, and we also shouldn't think that all platforms operate in exactly the same way because I think something that is often missed when we think about platforms is that there are actually a variety of, of platform models that we kind of lazily lump in together. So there's like labor platforms, there's streaming platforms, there's um, yeah a whole variety of different types of transaction and exchange platforms. Um, but I do think there are a couple of common features and, and they do change certain aspects of how we should think about um, businesses and, and, and capitalism. For me, platforms are best understood as essentially value capture devices. They're instruments that have been designed to appropriate the value-creating activities of those who use them. And so I think there's an extra exploitative dimension to the way platforms work because they're not just buying labour power to exploit workers. They're not just trying to make a small profit on goods or services that they're they're, uh, providing. They're really just kind of doing nothing. Um, And I think it's it's this idea that you could just sit there And benefit from having rather than doing, as the the kind of term goes in rentier capitalism, that you could profit from all of the activity that's happening within your space, within your world that you create. It's just an incredibly exploitative and extractive way of of being in the world as a business. Um, And I think this both gives them a lot of strength because, you know, you you benefit from network effects. So Facebook now has almost 3 billion users on its platform. Uh, Amazon, Google, Facebook, they're all kind of have these enormous monopolies uh, over the the industries and the spaces that that they work in. But at the same time, the fact of being a platform, when you think about it, it's also an incredible weakness because they don't actually do anything. The, The kind of matchmaking that a lot of these services provide or the, the portals or the, the gates that they can control, technically we could very easily replace them, right? Like let's put the question of political will and the kind of resistance that they would put up out of the picture. If you just wanted a public search engine, it wouldn't be that hard to, to, to clone something like Google. If you just wanted a, a, a logistic system that, that could clone um, the kinds of things that, that Uber or, or Uber Eats does, we could do that kind of stuff right it's it's the fact that you, it's very hard to challenge and replace dominant platforms um particularly when you're not a commercial actor and you have no vested interest in in achieving dominance to to reap the kind of rent and and the the profits that that they achieve through market dominance um but i still do think it's a weakness right i think the thing that every owner of a platform company secretly knows is that if the tide ever did turn against them, it could all go overnight, right? Because you, you don't have the kind of bricks and mortar, you know, long standing customer base. You've just got a bunch of people that, that have proven themselves in the past to, to be very fickle um, and to to be able to to switch platforms if, if it ever, you know, came to it, right? Like the MySpace exodus to Facebook, we think we think these platforms are going to be here forever, right? But people thought that about Rome, and it may, these platforms might not be here as long as Rome. They might actually only be here for another few years, uh, by which time, you know, another perhaps worse platform will come along, or something something altogether different. Um, so I do think that it's not just about technology. There is something incredibly specific about the way in which platforms operate that we need to think about. I think Nick Cernicek's book and, and, you know, many others right now, we've had thousands of articles on platforms, platform economy, Um, but there is something there, right? It's not just so, so for example, in Shoshana Zuboff's book, uh, Surveillance Capitalism, you know, she really distinguishes advertising platforms because that's really what she has in mind as as her kind of bet noir. It's Google and Facebook the kinds of platforms that extract surplus data from you in order to create advertising products. And really the, the unspoken hero of her book is Apple um, not the Apple that owns their own online market space, but rather the Apple that sends highs that, that's um, sells high-end consumer products because she thinks when Apple is at its best, it's brilliant. Basically that, that, the cycle that they have of putting out a really good product, getting feedback from consumers, giving the consumers what they want and reinvesting this back in this innovation cycle, um, that to her is kind of informational capitalism doing its thing. And it's kind of this, you know, as many people have pointed out, she thinks that surveillance capitalism is in fact this rogue mutation of how capitalism is supposed to operate. And she's not giving you Either a Marxist or an anti-capitalist, or even really a capitalist sceptical critique of these industries, she's giving you a, a kind of pro-free markets in many ways uh, critique of capitalism. Uh, and so it's, it was always very strange to me how beloved she is on the left and even the centre-left, given her background, the books she published previous to this, and the implicit framework of the the whole book. I, I mean, I suspect because of how long it is, many people don't actually read it, and so they. They're not really, it's just sounds like, yeah, we don't, we don't like surveillance. So therefore we like this book.
0: Yeah. She really did capture the zeitgeist for, for a moment there. Um, I agree about the, the link, um, but that's good. That actually predicts my next question. It, it sort of draws on Shoshana Zubak in a way. So I think one of the things you said is, you know, the platforms don't really do much, right. They're just profiting off of what, what users do. So kind of two related questions. One is, um, do you think then, right, if, if, if platforms are just, if they're doing nothing essentially or nothing that we couldn't replicate easily, do you think if we ban, did something like ban targeted digital advertising or digital advertising and kneecapped for what, at least for Facebook and Google, as Shoshana Zuboff points out, probably not Apple and Amazon, you just kneecap their revenue, um, that that would solve, you know, the problem that Shoshana Zuboff identifies as, as of extractive like data practices. And then you might see something that's like not profitable, not for profit, you know, like the U S government running a search agency paid for by the taxpayers run through the national archives or whatever. Um, or, or is, or is the problem uh, deeper than that? And then two, the, the way uh, these platforms are, are kind of situating themselves. Is, is that any different than previous, iterations of like say you know just anybody taking labor rights away like is is there something you know you say that they're not really doing anything but is there really anything different from uber and a taxi company besides an app like are are they are they really are the digital platforms really different
1: so let's let's talk about targeted advertising first if you ban targeted advertising it would be a good first step towards addressing some of these issues. It would, in fact, address every problem, I think, that Zuboff has with these corporations because that's really the only model she has in mind. She's not interested. I mean, the the book is not a book on the broader digital economy. It's not a book on Uber or Airbnb or any of these other platforms that, that have become so prominent in our lives. It's a book about advertising platforms and those that are able to generate Targeted advertising through mining our, our data and our behavior. So, yeah, it would cripple it would cripple Google and and Facebook temporarily, um, but it wouldn't stop them from showing advertising. So, the the European Greens are actually one group that have really tried to fund some research and look into the possibility of switching from a targeted advertising model to a slightly different model because they're worried about consumer privacy and questions of, of value being extracted from people. Um, so as I said, it would be a good start, but you, you have to think that, you know, it firstly, it doesn't stop them from advertising. It just makes their advertising products less specific. Um, so suddenly you don't get adver- adverts for like shoes after you've just searched shoes. You'll just get adverts for, for random stuff, I suppose. It depends on the technical aspects of, of what constitutes surveillance or what kind of information they can gather. You might just get, for example, on Google, um, adverts based on what your search has, has been on that particular occasion. So if you search for like restaurants in London, you know, N7 blah, um, you know, the, the top three results might just be, well, here are three restaurants that have paid us to put their, their name up front. So it doesn't, it it definitely kneecaps them, as you said, but like any good kneecapping, the reason you do that is because you don't want to kill them. You, you just want to hobble them a little. Uh, and so they they might be temporarily hobbled, but it's it leaves out, and this is the problem with the Zubos framework, it leaves out so much of the, the, the worst aspects that are happening elsewhere in the digital economy, right? Because it's not just targeted advertising. Platforms, Platform businesses are doing much more than just selling ads to people. And increasingly, those that are in the ad business are trying to move away from it because they're worried about the kinds of regulations that are getting cooked up in Europe and the effects that it might have on, have on their business. And so you see for Facebook, uh, when they became meta, they invested $10 billion into this new range of hardware, right? They want to get into virtual reality and augmented reality. They want us to live in the metaverse because they want us to sell all the products uh, to live there. Um, And and part of this move is trying to diversify their revenue stream because currently it's 98% is just selling ads. Um, And they would much prefer if they had a more, you know, as any company would, they had a more diverse revenue stream. Um, So target advertising just to start. But also, like, when we look at other platform models, you know, something like Uber and Airbnb, they're just getting money on transaction fees, Um, they're, they're charging people to connect, you know, either service providers, you have a house, you have a car, um, and they're just skimming a little bit off the top. So remember that a lot of this kind of stuff was already happening, right? That they've kind of sucked up a lot of the, the informal economy that, that was happening in these areas where people were either getting taxis or, or just getting lists with people that were people were staying in random places before the for-profit model of these, um, you know, we had couch surfers. We had other ways in which people were connecting to to do these kinds of transactions and and to to uh, fulfill these kinds of services. Um, so it's really about thinking of broader ways in which platforms are taking advantage of legal ambiguities of kind of grey areas in the law where they can step in and avoid the kinds of regulation that traditional companies have had and also avoid a lot of the the labor issues, right, because they want to classify people as independent contractors, as somehow distance from the platform. And in the book, I talk about these two movements of trying to concentrate profits at the same time as externalizing risk and responsibility both onto their workers and onto the the communities of users that use them. So there is something that is new here, but it's really just a radicalization of what companies have always tried to do, which is to get as much money as they can while pushing as many of the bad things as possible back onto other people. And that's kind of like even, you know, very pro-market people recognise that the problem of externalities that's created through the modern corporation is one of the biggest problems of capitalism because you have an economic unit that is seeking to maximise profit and where they can, they will definitely externalise um, costs of doing business onto others. and and the problem with platform companies is that you have this new technology that essentially allows them to skirt very old laws related to employment, related to the environment, um related to the type of business that they are. You know, suddenly they're not claiming to be within the industries that they're actually intervening in. They're tech- you know they're information providers or technology companies. Um, and so they're trying to find a series of ways to, kind of slip through a bunch of loopholes but really just to return us to to a very kind of 19th century model of doing business where it's like it's no sick pay no holiday pay you work as much as we want you to we have a series of of kind of algorithmic management devices that will make sure we've always got a flexible uh, and and supple labor force that we can you know do what we want with um and and whenever we run into issues that's going to be someone else's problem right it's going to be the community's problem because uh you know we're 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 it's we're just a platform we throw our hands up so yeah I think I think it is a, a kind of uniquely tricky situation and one that that requires a, a lot of analysis of like what platforms are actually up to
0: so I guess I'm wondering that right you have um uh, you you draw on Marx and you you talk about capitalism a lot in the book and so Shoshana Zuboff obviously really famously argues that surveillance capitalism is sort of as you say a rogue form of capitalism. Um, so so I wonder for you do do you feel that that what what's going on with like digital platforms is Rogue, is this capitalism? Is this new stage of capitalism? Other people have argued you know, this is actually neo feudalism, like the return to, to rentiers. Um, and uh, how do you think the like the tech bit of that fits into the critique of capitalism? So obviously, as as you said, you're you're centering technology corporations in this book. Um, but capitalism, the economy is like a wider global system. So do, do you think that like the tech corporations or like the tech economy is somehow distinct from maybe what we're seeing more broadly within the economy or capitalism at large?
1: Yeah, I think it's a mistake to see platform, the platform economy or the digital economy as somehow separate from or, or elevated above or in a separate realm from the rest of the economy, right? Because it's all completely interconnected, and as we've already touched upon, you can't really say that that Uber is doing something that's r- that radically different from taxis, right? And so that the taxis, you know, if someone catches a taxi and that's a contribution to the the regular or non-digital economy, and then someone gets an Uber and this is going to the digital economy, that doesn't make sense as a kind of analytic framework. So I think there is, a, a, you know, many connections and we know that these companies don't just exist in their own little bubbles right that they do have these large impacts on traditional businesses on infrastructure on you know other workplaces and other corporations so there is a lot of um interdependence there um now to touch on the question of you know what kind of a a capitalism are we seeing then with with the advent of these new platform businesses um I think it's most accurate to see this as an extension and as an intensification of capital's existing drive to commodify every aspect of our lives for profit. If you think of something like the metaverse and the next generation of of tech companies where we're seeking, well, these companies are seeking to further monetize the internet, the idea that we should have digital tokens or some kind of crypto coins, as a, an access token or as an entry requirement for access to online communities, to gaming, uh, to social media. Um, all of this is really just following in the spirit of Web2 of finding ways to monetize our interactions online. Um, so I think that this, this selling point that suddenly the next generation of tech companies are going to magically decentralize power and, and give us all ownership of the internet It's not really paying attention to what the companies themselves actually want to do, which is further centralize ownership and to further monetize interactions and to to make sure that there's no free or open anything, that everything is basically a corporate controlled platform or space Uh, to enter that space. you, You require some kind of subscription fee to engage in any transaction in that space whether you're creating something you're trading an avatar you're buying some kind of digital goods that that's all captured as well and that's all monetized as well and you know if you've been following Mark Zuckerberg's recent posts about what he's up to in the metaverse he's just making some cheap shitty digital goods like this is he's like this is really what the the name of the game right to to sell a digital balenciaga because it costs nothing um, and it can make everyone a lot of money. And if you can find someone silly enough to, to spend hundreds of dollars on online property or online shoes, or doing some collab with Nike or Reebok, then all the power to these tech companies, because that's kind of a, a big part of what this push, uh, to into the next kind of generation of, of online and tech products is about, um, So I think this is, you know, as true of that generation as it is of the current generation of platforms that we're dealing with today, that the real push was about finding ways to monetize um, our online activity. And for them, for, for the past decade, it's been primarily through advertising revenue and through some kind of subscription or transaction fees. Uh, so it's about creating a, a community, growing that community, and then asserting your ownership and and kind of dominance over that space in a way to really exploit the vulnerability of these people to accept what is essentially unfair terms of exchange, right, that you when you go into these platforms, you sign away any rights to receive value from, from the data that you're creating, from the, the services that you're using, but it's your activity that's powering these machines, right? Like we're the hamster in the wheel without us, without us posting and chatting and fighting, you know, they don't get any money because they don't have any people to advertise to. I think this is kind of what I'm getting at when I say, look, they don't do anything. Obviously they do something, right? The software is well-designed. It's often very user-friendly. It costs a lot of money to do this kind of thing. But the point is we could easily do that ourselves. The injustice of these platforms is that they have created this vastly unequal ownership structure at a point in time where people just didn't know how valuable these services would be, right? Uh, and so now that they're creating billions of dollars uh, of value, um, I think we need to ask ourselves, look, is this situation fair? Because regardless of how they got there, um, I think it's, it's plain to see that it's, it's an incredibly extractive and exploitative kind of relationship. Um, and so, yeah, that I think that the case for social ownership or collective ownership, or however you want to phrase it, um that we should extract public value from these digital services, and that this value shouldn't just go into the hands of of a handful of billionaires um is a very easy case to make on on in principle.
0: Yeah, I wanted to pick up on then um something you said earlier, which is about you know democratic control is is better or easier better localized. Um, So I wonder then when, when thinking about things like, especially like Facebook or instance, I'm wondering like, how do you think, I mean, I'm thinking about this in geographical terms, but like, how do you imagine the local? So like, if we look at even state attempts to like, quote unquote, control Facebook, how, how then do you think about like local control of, of platforms, especially when even states, not necessarily local, but, you know, uh, geographically bounded states struggle to control them. Does that just mean that we need different platforms, right? Like we need more local platforms, which are, say, interoperable. Is it something to do about internet architecture? Um, is it something about local local control? And, and then is there sort of a risk or like, how do you think about, um, you know, are, are these things going to become geographically or, or or nationally or locally bounded? Um, in a way that undermines some of like the the collective power that you have on, say, a platform like Twitter where you can connect with anyone regardless of, of geography.
1: Yeah, so I think there are two issues here. One is how do you challenge and regulate platform power? And the second is how do you replace it or, or find something better? When it comes to the first example, I do think we need state power and transnational power uh, in order to challenge these these platforms, I don't think you can just create local small alternatives that will somehow flourish in the face of huge multinational corporations because that just doesn't happen you can't you can't have a, a local tiny, tiny alternatives that will somehow rise up magically because that that's just not how a competitive marketplace works. So in order to constrain the power of these states, of these platforms, we need state power. We need the EU to, to regulate them and regulate them much more than they're currently doing. Um, and it really is the EU that a lot of people are looking towards because the US has just proved really unable and unwilling to, to step in to regulate US companies. And the the cutting edge of, of kind of regulation is really shifted to the EU, I think, particularly uh, in the past couple of years. Um, but it's also states, right? States can step in and, and ban Uber. they can you know s- provide certain conditions. They can say that there's a presumption of employment status of their workers. They can put various conditions on, on how people work for platforms. Um, so there are real uh, possibilities of state level and transnational actors. Um, challenging the power of platforms, of, of regulating them, of placing conditions on them in terms of size and, and market share and things like that. And it's also the power of, of unions and social movements to challenge these actors, of workers to directly resist, um, to, to go on strike, to form unions. Um, and we've seen a lot of this recently with, with Amazon. Um, but having said that, I think that when if we want democratic alternatives to these platforms we do need to remember that that democracy operates and functions best at at a smaller level and that it's very difficult to have a meaningful kind of democracy at a global level. Um, And, in fact, we don't really have anything that is a good example of this or that has worked particularly well. Um, So that's not to say that we can't find ways of constraining power at an international level, but it's just that if we want functioning democratic associations they tend to work best when they're smaller. Now, when we come to the, the example of social media, there are examples of, of interoperable services, right, that we currently have in, in the Fediverse, things like Mastodon um, and, and other forms of social media through which people can connect in small autonomous groups but still remain in contact with others in a broader social network. Um, and so this allows a certain degree of autonomy for people to set their own rules and set the kind of content and moderation policies, um, while still retaining connection to a larger network. But to be honest, it does open up a whole new set of problems, right. Of, for example, the burden of content moderation, if Facebook is not going to do it, then who are, it will be very difficult for small communities. Uh, it's also difficult to see how these kinds of services and tools would get funded. Um, because there would be huge inequalities of the kind of wealth people have access to so some people would kind of have these deluxe private services and and others might not have access to this for me the the answer is to for public organizations and so i'm thinking here of like large foundations nation states potentially um to fund people to create free and open source software under the condition of a kind of non-commercial non-exploit clause that you are creating these tools uh, for the benefit of humanity, um, that you're archiving them and, and kind of storing them in ways that are accessible, that people can tinker with and, and kind of make alterations on, um, and that you kind of, yeah, you need to find this kind of funding that that isn't just trying to fund European unicorns that are like for-profit you know, like a European Facebook, but rather that are doing public alternatives that are are based on commons principles, that are based on creating public value and, you know, for the common good that aren't going to be commercially exploitable. Um, And so I think that's the kind of thing that governments in particular and foundations need to start investing more in because I think that's where you get much better functioning alternatives along the lines of what we currently have in the free and open source software movement.
0: One of the things I wanted to ask you about is I think there's something, well, at least I struggle a lot with, is thinking about this relationship between or, or tension between the centralization of power and then, on the other hand, oppression and justice. James Scott has a, a, an anecdote in the beginning of his book about, about anarchy, which I really like, in which he says, you know, anarchy, something online is like anarchy or localization is not a panacea for for ending oppression and so he has this image of remembering how the u.s federal government sent in troops to desegregate schools obviously this is something i've been thinking a lot about in in the u.s contracts in particular around roe v wade in which you know a, a, a right is being imposed by a sort of like federal or or central authority and is supposedly "quote unquote" being given back to local states um and some of the like decentralized, again, quote unquote, or lo- more localized communities, say like Wikipedia are well, and I think you talk about them in the book as well. You know, they're, they're more decentralized, less susceptible to like central power in the way that Facebook is, um, but are still sites of other forms of oppression, be it gender, be it racial. Um, so how do you then think about what, when building new platforms or new alternatives uh, that like relationship between you know the fact that like injustice can exist or oppression can exist at a local level um, when, when you think about alternatives like how do you uh, uh, think about that tension between decentralized and democratic control and say like something along the lines of like justice or equality even
1: yeah it's a very tricky question because you're right to say that, you know, decentralization does not mean you're going to get the outcomes that you want in in every local region that is suddenly decentralized and it's also a problem of democracy, right? Because as soon as you let people decide, um what if they decide poorly? What if they they make bad decisions and and suddenly um the the power that you've given them means that um, they're, they're being more racist and sexist and homophobic on, on TikTok and Facebook or whatever smaller cooperative versions that they have. Um, and that the community guidelines that they set are even worse than the ones that Facebook had. Um, and on, on one hand, I think that there isn't really a, an easy and satisfying answer to this. You can't just magic away these kinds of problems. That is just the nature of people making collective decisions. And if you decentralise that, um, there's going to be a lot more, you know, many more groups that will have the power to to, to do these kinds of things. Um, I think that we do have a couple of things in our favour though. The first is that um, communities won't be motivated uh, by a for-profit business model. So one of the reasons why Facebook continually runs into problems um, is that well, they don't really care about any of these moderation issues. They just want to make money, right? So they have to, every step of the way, prioritize their advertising clients and their capacity to serve ad products above all other considerations. And I think this just leads them constantly into issues related to um, what kinds of content they leave up, You know how long Donald Trump was allowed to stay on all the platforms, all this kind of thing, because they're really about clickbait and they're about engagement. And so they're incentivized to have very racy, very evocative, very polarizing content on their platforms. Now, if we had community guidelines um, that were created by communities that were not oriented in this way, I think that kind of incentive to go out of your way to have terrible content on your platforms would be eliminated. Um, But, yeah, I think you're right. At the same time, you can't guarantee that people won't make bad decisions um, and I think there is a kind of certain democratic mindset that looks at some of the key social struggles in the 20th century, particularly around things like segregation, um, the black liberation movement, um, certain aspects of the feminist movement, and, and really sees like democratic federal governments stepping over republican state governments and therefore saying, um, aha, well, centralization is actually the key to a just society. Um, But there's no guarantee that the politics will work in your direction, right? You could very be very easily be a centralized right wing government and a bunch of local left wing alternatives that are, are, you know, uh, trying to to, to institute a different kind of, of, of system. So I think there, there's the question of centralization versus decentralization can swing both ways, and I don't think that the one or the other is a clear answer for one side of the political spectrum because it really does depend, and historically, it has depended a lot uh, based on on who's in power. Um, at the same time, though, I think I will return to this idea that look. Y- you can you know it, it's about who's deciding these things there has to be some institution or some kind of authority that is vested with decision-making power over certain aspects of how the community operates so the question is not you know there's no answer that is well no one decides right the, the answer is always someone so it's which collective do you want that to be and and the answer that i'm proposing is that that should be where possible that the most local and the most proximate community and source of authority that should have a say over how they operate, right? Because the answer is either that um, or some kind of more um, autocratic power, right? Either it's Mark Zuckerberg or it's some kind of central authority. And as soon as you don't like a decision that they make, you know, you'll you'll start to think that the decentralized alternative is starting to sound a bit better. But I do admit that, as, as you said, it's not a panacea to all our problems. And it does come with very tricky issues related to, yeah, the question of like, how do you uni- universalize a principle of justice? Because if everyone's just making up their own rules, it doesn't really feel like we live in a just society. It just feels like we live in a kind of whatever society in which, yeah, there's some racism here. There's some sexism here, but well, what can you do? They're all just communities trying to get along. Um but yeah, I think it's a genuine question. I don't. I think that we would need to try to think about things a bit more on a case by case basis. And I, I don't propose to have the kind of catch all answer to something as tricky as that question.
0: Yeah, it's a big. I, I think a lot about too, especially since I like you like tend towards local um, and, and localized power. Although I still I still remember like very vividly when I I did my masters in Northern Ireland, one of my professors saying to me like all of you, like utopian people come here or students, you know, utopian thinkers come here thinking and things are going to be so idealistic. And then you find out communities are not fuzzy places.
1: Yeah. I think there's a, there's a certain truth to that. I don't, I don't, I think we should be cautious of idealizing community as some kind of naturally good place or source of authority that communities can be bad. Communities can make bad decisions. Um, so yeah, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be too idealistic about that. I think you always need to find ways to protect people's basic rights to have certain universal laws that protect this, right. I'm not suggesting that the entire legal system be thrown out and everyone is just kind of in these like Mad Max, you know, (laughs) communities where everyone's like, just deciding on like who they're going to burn at the stake that evening. Um, for sure. But we're talking about internal matters yeah. to platforms, basically. Like Facebook is still, you know, you can still make, um, commit crimes uh, and uh, while on Facebook that are kind of covered by national law, right? It's not like Facebook is a, a jurisdiction upon itself.
0: Yeah. So normally at the end of the podcast, I ask people about their recommendations, but you conveniently have already given a list of kind of uh, uh, proposed ideas um, at the end of your book, which I really appreciate it. So I wonder if maybe you could pick a couple or maybe your
1: favorite. If, if you wanted my, my personal favorite, um, that which I'm kind of most passionate about, it would be the idea of integrating a short-term rental service into a, a larger public authority that had jurisdiction over housing because i think housing is really a, such a core issue for so many people it's something that that provides people with such an important social good right access to housing is kind of the starting point for us to do so much of what we achieve in our lives uh, and you know an inability to access this housing exacerbates existing mental health issues you know makes it almost impossible to do so many other things um i I think that it's such an easy and and logical argument to make that we just need to give homeless people houses and and start the conversation from there after they're in housing so i think for me when airbnb came along and really just commodified housing um i think this is a really tragic loss for for the commons and and for for public institutions and, and the public more more generally, because what Airbnb essentially is these days is a platform that facilitates other businesses um, running a, a commodification of long-term housing. Because if you look at like more than 50% of the Airbnb options in major cities, uh, they're, they're being run by by Airbnb barons, right? So people with like two, five, up to a hundred properties, where they're taking properties off the long-term rental market and using them as assets, right, that they can just sweat them for a much higher return in the short-term rental market. And there's an entire industry that has built up around this short-term rental market, which has just decimated many communities, taken housing off the long-term housing market, um, increased gentrification, increased touristification, um, and really led to this homogenization of housing in general, such that if you do go on a vacation in one of these Airbnb homes, it's just like entering a McDonald's, right? It's just all random shitty IKEA furniture. Um, and so the, the real problem here though, despite these kinds of you know cultural issues that we might take take issue with, is that suddenly um, housing itself has just become a business or 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 rather that it's it's further intensified existing trends towards the assetization of, of housing. So I think what you really need in this respect is is a much larger investment in public housing and social housing that's available to people um, based on how much money they earn. Um, And you should just ban short-term rentals. Short-term rentals should should not exist. They're a blight on society. Um, And every city should have a small proportion of short-term rentals that's run by municipal authority. Right? So if you do visit a new city, obviously it would be cool to, to have access to, to uh, options that were kind of like staying in the local community. And, and there are options, there are working examples that we have. For example, in Switzerland, you can have like housing complexes, which are cooperatively owned and run. You have might have, say, 200 apartments in there. And let's say five or 10 of those apartments um, are, are let out by the cooperative. Uh, as a way of both kind of earning a little bit on the side but also of like providing people with the experience of visiting the new city and living and being part of the community and I think this kind of model is possible to to spread um, to a variety of cities around the world such that you know when you have a municipal authority that runs the social housing program that makes housing available to people that we need to you know really expand what's on offer there but that's the that's the kind of institution and that's the kind of organization that could run a short-term rental service but it's it's for the value uh of the community it's for for creating value for the public um and it's to allow visitors to the city to do so in in a kind of nice and friendly way to stay in these uh public associations but to completely eliminate the aspect that that kind of commodifies housing so i think that's kind of I sketch it out in the in the book as like one of the examples that you could do is like an alternative to, to Airbnb. And we know that there are some cooperatives out there who are trying to change the Airbnb model. So I would point you to the fairbnb.coop people. Um, but, you know, I think ideally I would prefer a municipal association rather than a workers' cooperative to run something like that because I think it works best when it's integrated into a broader project of public housing, and I think this to return to Cole and good old friends G.D.H. Cole, um, you know, you can think about this idea of the kind of broader overlapping and integrated democratic associations that are responsible for organising um, social and economic life. So I think I, whenever I look, think of these things, I always do think of like the broader system. Um, and I think, you know, there's a really good argument for expanding the competencies of municipal authorities, so that they do have a much larger role to play in things like housing in transportation, in health and, and welfare delivery. Um, so yeah, that, that's my little, that's what I am most passionate about in the book.